Do you have a favorite spot? Like a favorite place that like you like to go and be? Maybe it's like an f- outdoor fire pit and you're roasting s'mores or hot dogs, cooking hot dogs. Maybe it's a kitchen table or a dining room table. We actually use our dining room table. Most people don't. We actually eat in there about once a week. Love our dining room table. Tell stories, connect. Um, maybe for you it's a lazy boy chair. Anybody in the room have a lazy boy chair? They're called lazy boy for a reason, aren't they? Um, Maybe it's out by your pool. Maybe your favorite spot is by the pool. It's your lanai, a a lounge chair. I want to tell you today about my favorite spot in Israel. It comes up today in our text, and I want to tell you about my favorite, my favorite spot. Now, the Israel trip was awesome. We're going to have another Israel trip this next um, September. It's in the bulletin. You can look a little little bit about it. September the 13th for 10 days. And so we had, we toured Israel. We had concerts like every other day, every other night. Um, We were in Solomon's temple, uh, Solomon's underground tunnels late at night, which was really cool. We were at the Wailing Wall one night, like around 11 o'clock at night. I can't believe how many people are at 11 o'clock at night. It's bedtime. All these people are out, you know, at 11 o'clock at night. Um, The Garden of Gethsemane, the empty tomb, all those are great. Phenomenal. But I want to tell you today about my favorite spot, and here's why. It was like 30 years of my life came together at one second. I don't know if you ever had that experience before, but it was like all my undergraduate studies, all my graduate studies, all the devotions I've done on this spot, this text, everything I've ever taught about it, I never really understood it. I never really got it. And I'm at that moment, and all of a sudden, I'm in this spot, and 30 years come together in like one second. I was like, oh my goodness, I get it. And I've never got it before, but I, I'm standing there and I'm looking at this and I'm going, I get it. This spot is 125 miles north of Jerusalem. So you see Jerusalem on the news at night. You know where Jerusalem is approximately. It's 125 miles north of Jerusalem. Keep going and you'll see the Sea of Galilee. It's about 24 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. There's a huge mountain up there called Mount Hermon. It's, just, it's the northernmost tip of all of Israel. And the area is called Caesarea Philippi. Now, why does it have two different names? Well, King Herod, the same Herod that Jesus was born under and the same Herod that killed all those babies, that king, Herod, builds a temple to Caesar Augustus. And it's a huge white marble temple at the top of this massive stone and Herod's trying to stay in the good, good graces of Caesar Augustus because Rome was in charge. And so along comes his son, who then is Philip. And after Herod the Great dies, Herod Philip now rebuilds the entire city and the entire area of Caesarea. He called it Caesarea Philippi. So he kept Caesar's name, but he also kept his own name. Now what makes this so significant is... It is an area, a culture that is just littered with Syrian gods. It has a god uh, that's worshipped called Pan. It has 14 different altars of multiple different gods of Syria and, and of Greek and Romans. And it has this huge white marble temple at the very top of it. And it was like, I'm standing there in this spot. And I realized this was the very spot that Jesus comes into and he says, I'm going to build my church. 
and not even the gates of Hades will be able to prevail against it. Thirty years come to me in an instant. It's like, oh my goodness. So I, I want to I show it to you. I want to tell it to you again because I want you to get this moment. I want you to get this experience, okay? So it's called Caesarea Philippi. It's the most northern section of all of Israel. And here's kind of this massive rock. So you can see people down in that hole. Um, That hole is for the god Pan. Now let me explain Pan. It's actually where the word panic comes from. And so the people would take their lamb or whatever, and they would sacrifice their lamb, and they would throw it into that hole. That hole, before there were earthquakes was a bottomless pit. And that they couldn't even tell how deep it was. And you would put your, your sacrifice into that hole. And every once in a while, it, it has a blowhole. Every once in a while, the blowhole would like get active, activate. And it would literally, your lamb would come firing up out of the blowhole. And everybody then began to panic. It's where the Greek word panic actually comes from. Oh my goodness, the God Pan did not accept our sacrifice. And I got it. I could see that at that particular moment. Look at the next picture. You'll see in those rocks a little bit of cut out spaces and there's 14 different altars to the Syrian gods. 14 different gods were worshipped in that environment. Next picture is the, the blowhole. If you've never seen like Fool's Gold, this is not in Israel, but you know, how many of you seen the movie Fool's Gold with Matthew McConaughey? <laughs> Nobody watches the movies in this, you know. Anyway, um, that's not in Israel, but that's what it was like before um, the earthquakes. And here's, here, let me show you the next picture. This is where the Jordan River actually begins. It's just a trickle of water. But it's where the Jordan River actually begins, and it flows all the way down to the Sea of Galilee, all the way down to the Dead Sea. And then here's this last picture. I want to just show you again how massive this rock is. So here's what happened. Here comes Jesus. The contrast could not be any greater. Here comes a homeless, penniless Galilean carpenter with 12 ordinary men, not very bright, not not dressed very well, At that very moment, the religious establishment was plotting Jesus' death. And Jesus goes into this environment that is just littered with Syrian gods, 14 different gods, the gods pan, this huge white temple that was dedicated to Caesar Augustus. And Jesus wants to know, who do you say that I am? And he expects the verdict to be, I am the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus, in that environment, then says, I'm going to build my church. And it's going to be more massive than this rock. It's going to outlast this rock. It's going to be stronger than this rock. And for, the, for me, I got a lump in my throat the size of a whatever, orange, grapefruit. And I began to realize this was such an outlandish statement. But it is exactly what Jesus has been doing for the last 2,000 years. The contrast of the power of Rome and the gods of Syria and the Jewish establishment that was anti-Jesus, and you couldn't find a greater contrast. And so here you've got this outlandish declaration by Jesus. I'm going to build my church. It's going to be bigger than this stone. It's going to be more massive than this stone. It's going to outlast this stone. I think the disciples were looking at each other going, 
has the carpenter been in the sun too long? What, what in the world is Jesus saying? What is he thinking? And then right after this story, we'll do this next Sunday. But right after this, Jesus then, six days later, takes Peter, James, and John up to the Mount, Mount, Mount Hermon where he is transfigured. Look at the next verse. It says, this is next Sunday, but we're going to look at Matthew 17 next Sunday. After six days... Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And next Sunday, we're going to see that Jesus basically unzips himself, and he reveals his glory. And everybody's like, these three guys are like, wow, this this is amazing. So let's get into it today. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to start with verse 13. Matthew 16, verse, if you've got a Bible or a smartphone with the U version on it, whatever, turn there with me and we'll follow this. Okay. So it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, again, it was a temple built long ago to Caesar Augustus, and now Philip comes along and Philip says, all right, I'm going to rebuild the city, but I'm going to name it after myself. So it's called Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is. What, what's the word on the street? What, what do people say about me? Now, you know this. You hear people talking about Jesus all the time. He's a good teacher. He's a good man. He's a good mentor. He's a good leader. He's a good... And so, so there's a lot of comments about Jesus. And so they say this in the next verse. They say, well, you know, some say like you're John the Baptist, which means maybe you came back from the dead. Maybe there's reincarnation, which there isn't. Others say Elijah. And others still say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And look at verse 15. But what about you, he asked? Who, who do you say that I am? Now, that's the right question. Because everybody in the room, it doesn't really matter what your grandmother says about Jesus. It doesn't really matter what your coworker says about Jesus. It doesn't really matter what your boss says about Jesus. What really matters is what do you say about Jesus? And every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, we've all got to figure out who Jesus is. I care what other people say, but, but really does it matter what other people say? No, what really matters is what are you going to say? What's your conclusion about who Jesus is? And so Jesus just kind of reels them in. As a fisherman, I love this. He reels them in, and he says to them, you know, what, what do other people say? Okay, that's cool. That's cool. That's good. That's great. Now, now, what about you? And that's the question this morning. What, what have you concluded about Jesus? So here's what he says. What about you? And here's what Simon Peter says. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, you are the son of the living God. Now, again, remember where they are. White marble temple on top. It's, now, it's not, no longer there today. Just, it was just ruins. But in that day, massive, massive temple. 14 different gods all around the rocks. The god of Pan. And all of a sudden, these 12 guys, and one of them says, you're the man. You're the God man. You're God who, who is man. You're, you're man who is God. You are the Messiah. You are the long awaited for. You are the one that we've been waiting for all these days. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. Look at verse 17. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. 
but this was revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. Now, that's what everybody in the room needs to have, their own revelation of Jesus. Brian Houston is the pastor of Hillsong, uh, Hillsong Church. It's over in Australia. And Brian Houston um, has been a pastor there, I think, for 30 years now. He's probably maybe five or six years older than I am, but great, great pastor, great, great guy. And he said the worst day of his life was when his executive pastor comes into his office and said, Brian, I've got something really bad to tell you. You're not going to like this. What? Well, your dad, your father, and the father was on their church staff, and the father actually had been an evangelist all over the world. He says, your father's been accused of being a pedophile. Your father's accused of actually sexually molesting a 10-year-old boy. And not only was it true, but actually several other now older young men came forward and said, you know, during this revival and during this trip. And so Brian Houston's dad actually was accused now of a crime and sexually molesting several of these boys. And Brian Houston said, that was the worst day of my life. But he said, what I began to realize is I was so worried about my children that he actually took off and went to all, I think he has four kids, and one of them was Joel. Joel was a 17-year-old, 17-year-old son, and Joel was an assistant, youth, assistant worship pastor at one of their satellite campuses. And so he goes to his son, Joel, who's 17, and he tells Joel, grandfather's been accused of this. It's probably right. It's probably accurate. This is awful. This is terrible. This is a crime. He's a pedophile. And, um, and then Brian Houston said, you know, son, I'm, I'm just concerned about your faith. Is this going to rock your faith? And 17-year-old Joel says, Dad, Dad, don't worry about me. I've already had my revelation of Jesus. I've already had my revelation of who Jesus is. And that's what you've got to have. Everybody in this room, Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, He is revealing Himself to you. And I believe... He continues to reveal himself to you over and over and over and over again. You actually have to resist him. You actually have to push and fight against him. But God the Father is in the business of revealing the Son to you. And so the question today is, have you had your own revelation of Jesus? Have you had a fresh revelation of Jesus recently? And God is in the business of revealing himself to you and to everybody. And the answer is, we can accept Christ and we can surrender to Jesus Christ in our lives. That's the gospel. Apparently, I didn't do a very good job teaching Ethan the gospel, but that's the gospel, okay? (laughs) That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is high and lifted. Christ is high and lifted up. Look at the very next verse. He says this. He says, I tell you that you are Peter, And on this rock, and what's the rock? And this is where Protestants and Catholics, you know, go back and forth. And we talk about the little stone and the big stone. And this Greek word means this. And this Greek word means this. And we get it all twisted and tied up together. I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And so, you know, half of you in the room are Protestants, half of you in the room are Catholics. I think in the next three minutes, I can offend everybody. I really do. 
I'm, that's my goal the next three minutes. Not really. So how do we interpret this? So for 2,000 years, this has been rolling around. And how, how do we interpret this? Well, I, I want to give you four different possible interpretations. Here's the first one. Augustine or Augustine, however you want to pronounce his name, Augustine took the rock to mean Jesus himself. You're Peter. And on myself as rock, I will build my church. That's not too bad, is it? That's palatable. Look at the second possible interpretation. The rock is the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. Okay. Look at the third one. The rock is Peter's faith. And on the faith of Peter, the church is founded. Now, that's not bad either. But what's happened is, is people began to talk about Peter's infallibility, which just doesn't even jive with Scripture. In Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council took James' counsel over Peter. So Peter can't be infallible because even in Jerusalem, they took another man's, another apostle's counsel over Peter. And the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians, Paul has to confront Peter for his racism. Peter struggled with some racial issues. And so, so we know Peter wasn't infallible. I think it's the fourth interpretation. Here's number four. Number four is Peter is not the rock on which the church is built. Well, that rock is Jesus. But Peter is the first stone of the whole church. Peter was the first man on earth to discover, to grasp, to make the leap of faith. So he is the first stone, a foundation stone. A beginning of the church, Jesus is establishing. All right, now I've just upset both camps, and so follow me. I'm a great unifier of the church, okay? So what do we do with this? Well, I think the point of this passage is what Jesus concludes with. I want to build my church. My church is going to be so massive. It's going to be bigger than this great big stone. My church is going to be so massive. It's going to outlast this stone. My church is going to be so strong that that it's going to be able to hold greater, greater weight than even this. And then he says this, not even the gates of Hades. Now, what what does Hades mean? Hades is not the same as hell. Hades is a place of departed spirits. Everybody went to Hades. And crudely speaking, Hades has like a dividing wall between it. And so when people die... Hades has a section for the righteous, and Hades has a section for the unrighteous. And that's all I'm going to get into today. And what Jesus is saying is, nobody comes back from Hades. Nobody breaks the chain of Hades. Nobody gets out of Hades. But I will. I will lay my life down, and in three days later, I will rise from the dead. I will break the chains of Hades. Hades can't hold me down. Hades can't hold me back. And what is Jesus doing today? He is raising up and establishing biblically functioning communities all over the world. If you say, what is Jesus doing today? He is raising up and establishing biblically functioning communities called churches, local bodies of believers all over the world. Now, again, you got this lowly carpenter with 12 ordinary guys in the power of Rome, the splendor of Syria, And he makes a claim that has been 100% accurate. I'm going to build my church. How else can you explain churches today in Iran, in Iraq? 
How can you explain churches today in Syria, of all places? How can you explain churches today in China that are growing exponentially? Churches in Cuba, house churches in Cuba, growing and growing and growing. Jesus said it. It didn't matter what it looked like. It didn't matter how big the odds were against him. Jesus Christ said, I'm going to build my church. It's my church. And nothing and nobody can hold me back, hold it down, and, and, and keep it from growing. And that's exactly what's happening today. And so we get to be a part of one of those local churches. And what an honor and privilege it is. So, so what is church? Well, church is the body of Christ. Church is a place. Church is a community. Church is a culture. Church is an environment where we all get to come. Church is one of those places that say, I love you and I, help, I want to help you. Church is one of those places that, that does its best to accurately communicate the Scriptures and to teach God's plan A for your life and for your family because it's always what's best for you. Church is that place where there's room to grow. Church is that place where I don't have it all figured out. I don't, I don't have it all together. But I got brothers and sisters around me who, who may be a little bit ahead of me, and they reach over, and they're in my balcony, and they reach over, and they pull me up. Church is that place where we learn the gospel. We understand that our sins are forgiven, and we get to go to heaven, and our shame and our guilt's taken away forever. Church is that community of believers where we come together and when we pray and when we serve and when we give and when we do things, we're collectively able to do more synergistically together than we could ever do individually. Church is an army. Church is a hospital. Church is a team. Church is where we come together and we charge the gates of Hades and hell with a water pistol and we win. We win. We win every time. And so there's no power, no entity, no government, no corrupt ruler, no leader, no ISIS, nobody that can stop the church of Jesus Christ from growing and from expanding. And we get to be a part of that. And we are. And so as a church then, I asked Jonathan a couple weeks ago, I said, can you show us like some of the things that we're doing? And I thought he did a super job with that. And he's so smart and gifted. And, I, and so he, he puts that together. He, he shows you just some of the few things that as a church that we're doing. But that's just a small amount because you're doing things that we don't even know that you're doing. You're ministering to your families. You're ministering to your neighbors. You're, you're involved with your coworkers. You're, you're doing things that we have no clue. That's the power of the church. And I love how that works. And so I, I think church kind of has the two P's. Okay, I think church is trying to help with problems, but I think church is also trying to prevent problems. We, we help when there are problems, but we also try to make a difference and be proactive. And, and I, I think, you know, when there's, there's issues and, and there's problems and there's drugs and there's alcohol and there's food issues and there's job issues and there's, you know, um, economic issues and there's counseling issues and there's psychological issues, I think the church is to step in and, and make a difference. And I think churches do that pretty well. I don't think we do the preventative side as well as what we should. 
And so as a leader, I, I'm all for the, the problems, but I'll tell you what I'm really for. I'm for prevention. I'm for us being a little bit more proactive. And it just looks like to me, don't send me any emails. <laughs> but it just feels like to me, there's a lot of churches in our community that are doing the, the soup kitchens, that are doing the, the clothing drives, that are doing all that. But, but I, I, I would much rather get over here and be prevented. I, I would much rather be proactive. So it's not one or the other, but I think we need to be able to focus on how can we prevent things. Now, think about this with our middle schoolers and our high schoolers. We can help our middle schoolers and high schoolers with drugs and alcohol, but wouldn't it be a whole lot smarter to get over here and prevent some of those problems? I can walk you through a divorce. I've walked 150 people through a divorce. I can do that. But wouldn't it be a whole lot wiser to build a healthy marriage and to, to, to avoid the, the trouble and the economic disaster and the emotional disaster that comes with the divorce? And so again, a, as a church, our goal is not just problems, problems, problems. It's not just prevention, prevention, prevention. Although I don't think churches in our community do a good enough job over here. I think everybody thinks this is so spiritual. Well, I don't think this is more spiritual than this. This isn't more spiritual than this, is it? It would seem to me like it would be so wise for us to be able to do both. That's really why we're building a wedding chapel. The whole wedding chapel is for prevention. That's why we're spending so much time with families, because again, we love you. If your family's blown up and imploded, yes, we can help you, but we'd rather get on this side and keep you from blowing up. Does that make sense? So think about this for a month before you send me any emails, okay? Just think about it. Just pray about it. Jesus will lead you, okay? And so it's, it's time for you to have your revelation of Jesus, And when you have that fresh revelation of Jesus, there's growth and there's transformation in your life. And maybe maybe it's time for a breakthrough. Maybe it's time for you to actually have a breakthrough and and break the cycle. My brother, is uh, his name is Wayne, and I think Wayne is seven years younger than I am. We've talked about this dozens of times on how he and I don't have any excuses if we mess up our lives. We have no excuse. But our dad broke the cycle. And our dad is kind of a hero to us for that very reason, because our dad, in a terrible situation, terrible home life, my grandpa Parker, who I've met twice, um, my grandpa Parker ran around on my grandma when they were married, ran around on my grandma when he remarried. He drank way too heavy when he's married to my grandma, drank way too heavy when they got divorced, and he got remarried. And my grandpa Parker made a lot of money, and he wasted most of it. And my grandpa Parker in his mid-70s took a pistol and shot himself and killed himself. It didn't end well. It didn't end well. But my dad, at age 40, accepted Jesus Christ. My dad, at age 40, got a fresh revelation of who Jesus is. And that's the power of the gospel. And so again, for you today, is it your day to give your life to Christ? Is it your day to be baptized into Christ? Is it your day to join the local, the local church and get involved and get plugged in? Is it your day to break some of the cycles and have some breakthroughs that are necessary in your life? That's the power of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said it. I am the Messiah, he said. I am the Messiah. And I have come to build my church. And we are involved in the only institution 
that Jesus Christ ever established was the local church. And he promised power, and he promised might, and he promised growth, and he promised expansion. And it starts with you, and it starts with me. So I, I want to pray for you. So if you would, I want to have kind of a collective prayer. We're going to sing uh, a song together, and the prayer partners are going to come down front. And maybe today is your day to become a Christian. Maybe today is your day to say, I want to be baptized. Maybe today is your day you want to join a local church, our local church. Why don't you stand up? I'm going to pray over you and pray for you. And then we're going to have a kind of a closing song, and we invite you to come and be a part with our prayer partners. Jesus, you are awesome, and we worship you today. We thank you that we get to be a part of a local church, and we get to be a part of what you're doing and how you're doing such a great work. You promised to build your church, and you're building it here in our community. You're building it all over the world. You're changing people's lives, and it begins with our revelation of who you are. Reveal yourself to us. Remove all our resistance. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.